This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our guest, Ruth E. Carter, won an Oscar for Best Costume Design for the film Black Panther, which made her the first black person to win an Oscar in that category. Now she's nominated for the sequel, Wakanda Forever. This is Carter's fourth Oscar nomination, marking a 30-year career with more than 60 film and TV credits. She was responsible for the clothing aesthetic of several of Spike Lee's films, including Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. Some of her other films include The Butler, Selma, and Amistad. She even worked on the Seinfeld pilot. Carter spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, the host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Over the past 30 years, Ruth E. Carter has produced some of the most iconic looks in the Black film canon and beyond. She's known for conducting extensive research to create costumes that help bring characters' scenes and storylines to life. Her latest work, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, starts with a funeral in the fictitious world of Wakanda. Beloved King T'Challa, played by Chadwick Boseman, has died. The actor passed away in real life from colon cancer in 2020 at the age of 43. In the movie, hundreds of mourners line the streets to watch the funeral procession. They're draped in white, each tribe distinguished by intricate beadwork, fur, turbans, and other adornments. Carter's attention to detail and her mastery of historically accurate looks has earned her several awards, including an Oscar and several Critics' Choice Awards and the Career Achievement Award from the Costume Designers Guild. Ruth E. Carter, welcome to Fresh Air and congrats on your latest Academy Award nomination. Oh, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Were you a Marvel Universe fan and that storyline before taking on the Black Panther movies? Uh, I wasn't. I can't say that I really was. Um, I really love movies and I love um, black history and um, I love telling stories of people and the history of, you know, black America is something that I have been close to for a long time and um, really felt like that was, you know, my part in this whole uh, filmmaking um scenario. And that's what I really enjoyed, you know, and I did Malcolm X and telling his story. I really loved the research process and and doing that. So once Marvel came into my world, I really wasn't even sure about, you know, how what I did and what I loved would actually affect uh, this type of genre. Um, until I met Ryan Coogler and, and was introduced to the world of Wakanda. You had a lot to consider entering this Marvel universe. There's the original comic book series, coupled with conceptualizing what people from a fictional African nation that's never been colonized might wear. And this meant digging into the history and culture of real African nations. You were basically creating magical realism, but were you ever concerned about the blending of so many African cultures? 
Of course. I think where we went wrong for um, so long was that we thought of Africa as one monolithic place, one look and one one way of thinking about Africa. And uh, when we got together on the first Black Panther, um, we were sure that we were going to dissect the tribes and use some of the traditional practices of, you know, creating some of these costumes to make them feel more authentic to each each region around the continent. I mean, there's thousands of tribes throughout the continent of Africa, and we picked eight or 12 of them to represent the tribes of Wakanda. And so it was very important that we uh, showed a delineation. And also, if we were to blend a few um, traditional custom uh, indigenous looks, um, that we were intentional with it. So like if the Dora Milaje, you can travel around the whole continent of Africa in the one costume, you know, there's the Turkana beads and the, and the Himba leather and the Maasai color and the Indabele rings. Um, and there are other, other forms of that as well. Creating a world that has never experienced colonization, how did you... I guess for lack of a better term, how did you decolonize your own mind to come up with the concepts along with the research? Was there a process you personally had to go through? I did, because when we started this out in BP1, many people didn't really have a reference for what royalty in Africa looked like. And um, uh, and all we had really was, you know, Coming to America or The Lion King. And those were great projects, a great film. But I knew we were doing something different. And so it was important that I have a roadmap for all to see, for all to to study um, in the office where we created um, lots of mood boards that showed you the different indigenous tribes and what that looked like, what modernization would look like, what technology would look like. Um, there was also you know, a wonderful document that Hannah Beekler, the production designer, put together that we used like a Bible when we wanted to look up, you know, the business district of Wakanda. There was text and and some images of, you know, what it was and, um, you know, what it meant. A Wakanda Bible. Yeah, it was. And it took you all over Wakanda. Um, There's like a school district, a merchant district. And uh, we also did our boards uh, off of that inspiration um, and visually expounded on it uh, so that, you know, everyone could see that was working with me from whatever point of view you came from, you could learn about what we were doing right there in the office. When did you know that you were on the right track? I really felt that we were doing something special. And I knew when something didn't look right, it really, I had a visceral reaction. Is there an example of that? Yes, I think the Dora Milaje, that's the female, uh, the highest ranking female fighting force 
of Wakanda. They protect the king. They protect the Black Panther. Um, They wear costume that was um, conceptualized by Anthony Francesco of the Marvel uh, Design Group and then materialized in my shop. And... It was very important that the materials not create a costume that looked too much like a costume. I, we really wanted it to be taken seriously. Uh, we didn't want it to be over-sexualized like the comics sometimes paint uh, female warriors. Uh, we wanted them to be uh, flat on the ground in martial arts boots, We wanted them not to be in cheerleader skirts and triangle tops, Um, their bodies protected. And also in the making of it, it needed to honor the female form. So there's a harness that um, we created uh, out of leather and in the spirit of the Himba tribe in that this leather, brown leather harness travels around the female form and honors it, you know, honors the bust and the waist. Uh, It ends in a back skirt that we studded and put little rings on the edges, just as the Himba women do as they stretch the calf leather and make these wonderful leather skirts that they also stud and put little rings on. And Ryan Coogler, uh, the director, wanted the Dora Milaje to be heard before they were even seen. And the little rings um, emitted this like lovely sound, you know, even though they were deadly, um, they you could hear them before you saw them. So, so you can easily discount how important those things are in creating this costume, but when you do, you end up with something that doesn't have the same meaning and doesn't have the same impact that it does when you go to that place of authenticity and, and intention. You were already in the process of making Wakanda forever when Chadwick Boseman passed away from colon cancer. This was during um, the the height of the pandemic as well, and, and you weren't sure if the movie would continue. How did you and the crew handle that time period as you waited for director Ryan Coogler and writer Joe Robert Cole to rewrite the film? Well, when I heard the news that our friend and our brother had passed, it was quite a shock. And we gave each other space to mourn. And uh, I wondered what would happen and wasn't sure, like, if we would even be able to do another Black Panther film. Uh, I, I didn't personally feel like it was possible and certainly didn't want to ask because it was so sensitive and, and unimaginable and shocking and sad. Very sad. What Ryan Coogler was able to come up with, though, honors Chadwick in such a profound way and T'Challa from the opening scene of Wakanda Forever. Coogler and Cole wanted to incorporate the loss and bravery 
of Black Panther. And so they wanted an all-white funeral, not off-white, pure white, to adhere to the West African traditional funeral garb. These funeral garments play a role of significance throughout the film. Was the through line of burning the clothing to mark a new beginning always a vision? Um, or, or did you all work together to build on what you learned from your research? Oh, uh, this was brought to us with um, our collaborations with the historians and Ryan uh, offered this as part of the telling of this story. I'd never, I never knew about it before then, and it's part of the uh, big part of the story because we do see this white funeral. We see two. We see a smaller funeral amongst the tribal elders. Um, where they then carry the casket through the procession where there's a bigger uh, celebration of life. Um, and all of the tribes of Africa um, within this West African ceremony come together, uh, unifies Africa to say goodbye to this great king. And then the end of the mourning period is done by burning the funeral garments and it's just a beautiful journey of tradition that I think honored Chadwick in this film. Were you on set during the filming of, of those scenes? Oh, yeah, of course. I'm on set a lot, um, especially in times like that when there's several costumes. And there's a lot of work to getting um, it ready for camera. You know, I, ha I do have a big crew that's around doing all kinds of stuff. And of course, I, you know, see things that I want to tweak that are, you know, particularly um, precious to me, or I want to make sure they're, they're seen right in, in the right way. And um, our wonderful cast is all adorned. It's a special time. Um, they're wearing white, and so it's important that they, you know, not travel in, you know, passenger vans through. I think it was like muddy and rainy uh, when during the time of uh, that uh, filming, and so I had them erect uh, tents where we um, laid a. A, some road work, and they were able to walk across this clean area after they were dressed in the tents and arrived on set. So um, there's a lot of coordination in that way that I have to oversee. What was it like to come together in that moment? Was it as powerful on set during the filming of it as it was for us to watch it? It was more powerful on set to watch that funeral scene because, you know, we had so much work to get prepared for that. I had dancers and all the different tribes. I had drummers that would be up on top of the roof by the beautiful mural of Chadwick. And it was once everyone was together and dressed and ready and and in line that it hit you that this was to honor Chadwick and it was magnificent. I want to go back with you to the beginning of your costume design career and I want to start with Spike Lee. Uh, you and Spike have worked together on close to a dozen films starting in 1988 with School Days, his second film. 
When you two met, you were doing costume design for a local theater show in Los Angeles, and you weren't even considering film as an option. What was it about a young Spike Lee's vision that captured your attention? I felt like I had been trained um, after I graduated from Hampton University in Virginia, and I went on to do internships in theater and opera, and I drove my little Volkswagen Rabbit across country to Los Angeles where I was going to pursue theater, uh, which there was less theater here than there was film. And when I was approached to work with Spike, uh, he invited me to see She's Gotta Have It. Uh, It hadn't gone to the Cannes Film Festival. He was screening it around Los Angeles. And I kept missing um, the date. And he would send me a little postcard saying, you know, what up? You know, missed you at the screening. And I'd go, darn it, you know, because I was working in theater, you know, through the night, you know, I would uh, work in the costume shop during the day, and then I was a part of the running crew uh, for the theater's plays in the evening. And I really enjoyed it because I enjoyed um, hanging out with the actors and, you know, the whole process, the whole magic of theater. I really did love it. And so I finally did get to a screening, and I remember seeing Nola Darling walking down um, the street in Fulton Mall in Brooklyn. And I thought to myself, here I had been doing Vanya and Shakespeare and the English Cat and opera, and this seemed so, so small. Um, I soon found out it was anything but small that I had to learn how to uh, look at things in close-up and in detail and tell the story in a different way through film. Um, but school days uh, came, and, and it was the perfect first film for me because it was a bit theatrical, and it did deal with a story that I knew, which was the HBCU experience. So Spike called you up and said, hey, I want you to costume design for school days. You were in theater, so you had never designed for a film, but you said yes. And you went to your brother, Robert, who's also an artist, for advice on how to get started. And what did he tell you? Oh, it was a great time. Uh, My brother invited me to his studio in New Hampshire where he lived. He worked for IBM during the day, but he's a great painter. He's always been a great painter. And so he had a big studio in the basement of his house. And I had the script with me. He had an IBM computer next to his big drafting table. And and he said, first, you've got to, you know, learn how to do a budget for all these characters, you know. And he sat me at his computer and we figured out how to present a budget. And then I began to um, sketch all the characters that we listed. And one of the things he told me was, you know, get those ideas out of your head. Create a series of folders with all your characters' names on them. And every time you get an idea, you know, either write it down or if you see something in a magazine, tear it out. Whatever it is, populate your folders with your ideas so you can open your mind to receiving more new, fresh ones. 
that was one of the um, things he was telling me as well. In between me making him a rum and coke, you know, and uh, he'd sit in his big chair while I sat at his drafting table and sketched. And uh, after I had all of my sketches done, um, I called Spike, who was in um, New York, in Brooklyn, and Spike invited me to uh, his apartment to show him all of the costumes. Mm. And so I got directions from Spike to his house, which was, you know, take the A train, get in the back of the train, switch to the number two, you know, get off at this stop. And uh, and I did everything he told me, and I ended up in his uh, little basement apartment in Brooklyn, and I had a whole display in front of him of the costume design for school days. That's Ruth E. Carter speaking with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley. Carter won an Academy Award for Costume Design for Black Panther and is nominated for the sequel, Wakanda Forever. She'll talk more about working with Spike Lee after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Hi, this is Molly C.V. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with more of our interview with costume designer Ruth E. Carter. She won an Academy Award for costume design for Black Panther and is nominated for the sequel Wakanda Forever. This is Carter's fourth Oscar nomination. She started as a costume designer for theater, but went on to work on film and TV. She's responsible for the clothing aesthetic of several of Spike Lee's films, including School Days, Do the Right Thing, and Malcolm X. She spoke to our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. When we left off, they were talking about Carter getting her start in film, working on Spike Lee's School Days. I have to ask you about a particular scene from School Days. Um, You mentioned that you went to Hampton University, which is a historically black college. And School Days is a story about undergrads in a fraternity and sorority at at a historically black college clashing with each other over a homecoming weekend. And this film takes on all types of subjects, elitism, classism, colorism. Let's listen to a scene where the Jigaboos, who are dark-skinned Black women, and the wannabes, light-skinned Black women, have a song battle over their hair. Cause you got so much grease up there Give us that a weave that you wear You got chunk of us Standing all over your head And you got sandy spurs Rather have mine instead You're just a jigaboo Trying to find something to do Well, you're a wannabe Wannabe better than me 
That is the scene from the movie School Days. Ruth, can you describe what the Jigaboos and the wannabes are wearing? <laughs> well, you know, Spike, who was a big-time sports aficionado, uh, wanted them to be in hockey jerseys. And so I went to a company that specialized in custom hockey jerseys, and I got the Jigaboos, a red and purple and white hockey jersey with a small J that was uh, printed on the front, you know, with a big dot on the top of the small J. And the wannabes are in a silver, black, and white hockey jersey with a capital W on the front of their um, jersey. They're all in um, jazz tights and jazz boots corresponding with the colors that they are wearing um, and little cropped tops. They're cute. They are etched in my (laughs) mind, my little 13-year-old mind. But... (laughs) Color plays such a significant role in us understanding characters. And of course, with fraternities and sororities, colors play a huge part. What went into making these color choices? Well, you know, Spike uh, wanted the Gammas, the Gamma Phi Gamma, the fraternity in the movie, to be the silver and black. And the girls that form like the Gamites, the girlfriends of the Gammas, they also were representing that fraternity as a sorority in the same colors. The Jigaboos, who were anti-sorority, they are wearing brights. They are wearing Africa colors. They are, you know, about back to Africa. They are about divest now. So it was important that we kept the colors of the African diaspora, you know, alive and vibrant for them as a group. They consider themselves activists and they were very anti-fraternity sorority. Spike Lee's 1989 film, Do the Right Thing, takes place on the hottest day of the year in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn. And Spike Lee has said that he wanted the look to um, to be bright, almost blinding, Afrocentric bright. Was that enough to get you to understand his request right away? What was the process of getting there? Well, we were an independent film. We were low-budget we had to make it work with uh, product placement. So Nike was a big uh, factor in they gave us so many sneakers and compression shorts and tank tops and stuff like that. But it was all very saturated color. And we were representing the hottest day of the year. Um, We were representing a neighborhood in Bed-Stuy that I actually lived in while we were shooting. And I didn't see that same vibrancy every day. I did see color, of course. You know, Brooklyn is the epitome of the African diaspora where you see gays and women uh, from Africa in their traditional garb. I think that's probably the first place I've, I experienced it as a 
kid going uh, to New York, seeing it, you know, in Brooklyn or in Harlem. But because I had to balance what I was given from these, uh, you know, athletic companies with our Bed-Stuy, I had to be clever in that the African fabrics balanced out the athletic fabrics. So we made a lot of crop tops and shorts in, you know, Ankara fabrics. And it did create this vibrant tableau of this neighborhood. It also, uh, the saturation of color created like the heat of the night, the heat of the day. And, and also that the protest was amongst the youth and the neighborhood. And um, when you think of do the right thing, you really do think of a neighborhood that's vibrant and thriving and you can see the colors of the neighborhood. And um, I feel like it was really important to show that unification. When you see uh, Bugging Out in his kente shorts and his bright yellow top, um, you know he's representing his culture, you know, and he's asking Sal, who is in the pizzeria, and, um, you know, it does feel very Italian. We had heavy green and we had um, John Totoro in like a tank top. And we were constantly like sweating them up to show the heat. So it, it was a vibrant, um, surrealistic protest film. And I think that's why it's standing the test of time because it still feels and looks um, relevant, especially the storyline. How did you sweat up John Turturro and do the right thing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Spike was always yelling out for sweat, you know, because he wanted to really show how hot the summer was and uh, John uh, wanted to wear, you know, the sleeveless tank. And uh, we just had glycerin and water in a spray bottle. And we were responsible for sweating up his uh, garment and then makeup sweated his face and, and arms. But it was a constant process, even when it got late in the summer and the weather was changing and it actually got cold and we were shooting some of those same scenes. Uh, And so the actors were like, you know, don't come near me with that water bottle. So it was tough getting through the whole summer. These films, School Days, Do the Right Thing, were the beginning of a long journey working with Spike Lee. Do you think your career and his career would have been the same without each other? I often thought Spike and I both cared about our community um, deeply. We cared about our history deeply. You know, there's such a shorthand that happens when you are speaking with someone who laughs, you know, at what you laugh at, who understands what they're looking at when you show them uh, your ideas. There's a wonderful uh, connection to culture and to the desire to show our community and, and represent each other in a way that we have experienced but we haven't seen. And so as far as our careers, you know, having a a companionship 
in that way that we enhanced each other. Um, I, I don't think that I would be the same uh, filmmaker um, without the experiences that I had with Spike. Mm -hmm. And that, that run of films um, shaped who I am today. I don't know what it did for Spike, but I know what it did for me. <laughs> we have to ask him. He's got to speak on this at some point. <laughs> he probably has already. Let's take a quick break. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ruth Carter, a costume designer for film and television, with more than 40 films to her credit, including many of Spike Lee's earliest films. She was nominated for an Academy Award for her work in Amistad and Malcolm X, and she won an Oscar for Best Costume Design for The Black Panther and is nominated again this year for the sequel, Wakanda Forever. We'll be right back after this break. This is Fresh Air. You know, so much of, of your life, you've had experiences that have led you to other experiences in such a fluid way. I mean, while you were in college, you were a street performer for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation Living History Program, which essentially... I was. <laughs> you were giving history. This was something that you were already a part of and understanding, and this would help you in your later work. And then you had an internship, as you mentioned earlier, at the Santa Fe Opera in New Mexico, which gave you that grounding in theater. All of this experience then really helped you as you started to move into period pieces. You've done 16 period films, and your first was the 1992 film Malcolm X. You constructed five periods of Malcolm's life based on the autobiography as told to Alex Haley. At that time, this was contemporary history. Malcolm X had only been assassinated 27 years before. What were some of the ways that you prepared yourself for creating that time period? Well, the first thing that I wanted to do was to understand uh, the man uh, so I could build his life in costumes. And I knew that he had uh, been incarcerated in Massachusetts and so I started a letter-writing campaign to the Department of Corrections in Massachusetts asking to uh, view his uh, files. And, and uh, I was given a date that I was to report to um, the big building in Boston. And um, they were ready. They had uh, pulled his files um, out of their archives and they were waiting for me in a cubicle at an empty desk for me to um, spend time with. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I saw his original letters that he wrote to the commissioner asking to be transferred to um, another facility that had a bigger, better library. I saw his booking photos, um, and I saw his penmanship, and, and I felt really uh, close to the person who had, you know, written by hand and touched this paper, you know, these letters. And I also uh, went to the university where the late Dr. Betty Chabot as uh, taught, and I spoke with her face-to-face -face about her life and what she wore and, and about him. And so I felt like I could make those decisions 
um, confidently about what he might have worn in those times where he wasn't photographed, where he was at home with his family, or where he was preparing uh, for one of his great speeches. This film comes up for you often. Uh, Directors, uh, producers, when they meet you, it's one of the first films they say to you. I really love that work there. It was it was a very important flashpoint in your career. Yes. Uh, when I was asked to uh, go in to meet Steven Spielberg and interview for Amistad, there was no script. I actually went and found some uh, writings on the Amistad story. And I sat in uh, Amblin at his offices at a conference table, and there were only two chairs across from each other. Um, I sat in one, and I waited for Stephen to come off the set of uh, Jurassic Park during lunch. And I remember he sat down, and someone brought him his lunch, and he was like, no, 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 not now. He was interested in speaking to me, and I was... It was just like being someplace where you imagine you would never be uh, in front of a great filmmaker and, you know, representing yourself as a costume designer. And he sat there and he said, I really loved your work uh, in Malcolm X. And... uh, I was really proud of that. Uh, He gave me the script, and after some uh, discussion, he said, take it home, give it a read, and let me know, uh, you know, in the next couple of days if you want to work with me on this. And I thought, you know, I could call him from the parking lot and tell him (laughs) I want to work with him on this. Right in that moment, yes. Right in that moment, yes. But I, you know, wanted to read the script, and I took it home. You've worked on so many films. I mean, we'd be well past our time if I asked you about each and every one. I'd love to do with you a quick round, just the first thoughts that come to your mind when you hear them. And I want to start with Seinfeld, the pilot. (laughs) Jerry, and he is so neat. He was so organized and um, methodical. And uh, I remember his apartment, how... It was so well, well appointed, and and his closet was ex- impeccable. I almost couldn't pick anything out for him to wear for on the pilot because he, you know, it was this low budget thing, and he was going to wear his own stuff. And he invited me over to pick some stuff out of his closet, and I was like scared, but I did, and I was like, wow, that was so totally cool that, you know, I experienced that. Next, the 1988 comedy, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka, where Fly Guy, played by Antonio Fargas, gets out of prison after a long sentence and pulls out his old clothes, which include platform heels with a goldfish inside of them. Okay, please, quickly, tell me how, how you found those those shoes. We made those shoes, those goldfish shoes. Um, there was a football player, and he had platform shoes in the 70s with goldfish in them and it was written in the script and uh, I couldn't wait to make those shoes but they were like aquariums you know and uh, they were very hard to walk in so we had to make a pair that he could actually uh, walk in and then a pair that he could break in the water and the fish come tumbling out. Did you ever experience 
folks seeing this in the movie theater because it is a core memory for me of that scene and the entire theater just roaring laughing. <laughs> it was like people couldn't contain themselves. Yes, I remember that in the theaters. It's funny when you're working on a movie, you're looking at different things than the audience. It's unfortunate. You know, I actually don't um, see the film like the audience might um, for, for a long, long time. Ruth E. Carter, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Ruth E. Carter is nominated for an Academy Award in the category Best Costume Design for the Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever. Her book, The Art of Ruth E. Carter, which includes her thoughts about and illustrations from her films, will be published in May. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast, Truth Be Told. You can see some of Ruth Carter's sketches on our website, freshair.npr.org. Coming up, book critic Maureen Corrigan reviews on writing and failure, in which the author, Stephen Marsh, warns, in a humorous way, that a writer needs to get used to failing over and over again. This is Fresh Air. On writing and failure. It's a subject that could fill volumes, but instead it's the title of a new pamphlet-length book by Canadian novelist and essayist Stephen Marsh. Book critic Maureen Cargan says that while failure may be no laughing matter, Marsh's little book is a witty delight to read. No whining. That's one of Stephen Marsh's refrains throughout his provocative essay called On Writing and Failure. As a writer himself, Marsh would never deny that writing is hard work. He well knows that writing for a living is fatiguing to the brain and tough on the ego, and that the financial payoff is overwhelmingly dismal. But by repeatedly saying, no whining, Marsh is telling aspiring writers in particular to get used to it. His aim in this little book is to talk about what it takes to live as a writer and what it takes, in Marsh's view, is to have no illusions about the certainty of failure. Even beyond talent or luck, Marsh argues, the one thing a writer needs to get used to is failing again and again. On writing and failure is not your standard meditation on the art and nobility of writing as a profession. But while Marsh's outlook is as bleak as one of Fitzgerald's legendary hangovers, his writing style is buoyant and funny. On writing and failure is part of a new pamphlet series being published by Biblioasis, a small independent Canadian press. The pamphlet is a quintessentially 18th century form, popularized by the likes of Tom Paine and Mary Wollstonecraft, and Marsh walks in their footsteps. He's a quintessentially 18th century Enlightenment stylist, bristling with contrarian views and witty epigrams. For instance, here's a passage where Marsh discusses the cruel species of irony that drove the working life of Herman Melville. His first book, says Marsh, was Typee, a peep at Polynesian life, pure crap and a significant bestseller. 
His final book was Billy Budd, an extreme masterpiece he couldn't even manage to self-publish. Melville's fate was like the sick joke of some cruel god. The better he wrote, the more he failed. The bulk of On Writing and Failure is composed of similar anecdotes about the failures endured by writers whose greatness, like Melville's, was recognized far too late to do them any good, or writers who dwelt in depression and or rejection. English has provided a precise term of art to describe the writerly condition, says Marsh, submission. Writers live in a state of submission. Marsh, by most measures a successful writer, shares that he kept scrupulous account of his own rejections until he reached the 2000 mark. That was some 20 years ago. He's in good company, of course, with writers like Jack London, who reportedly kept his letters of rejection impaled on a spindle that eventually rose to four feet, around 600 rejections. If you're expecting a big inspirational turnaround after this litany of literary failure, forget about it. Instead, Marsh insists on staring clear-eyed into the void. The internet, he says, loves to tell stories about famous writers facing adversity. What I find strange is that anyone finds it strange that there's so much rejection. The average telemarketer has to make 18 calls before finding someone willing to talk with him or her. And that's for stuff people might need, like a vacuum cleaner or a new smartphone. Nobody needs a manuscript. Marsh says several times throughout his essay that he intends on writing and failure to be a consolation to his fellow writers, to assure them that their misery has company. Cold comfort. But Marsh is smart enough to know that no one who wants to write is going to be discouraged by cautionary tales or dismal book sales statistics. Nor should they be, because occasionally, when the stars are aligned, someone writes a work as provocative, informed, and droll as on writing and failure. Maybe writing well is its own reward. Marsh would probably say it has to be. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed On Writing and Failure by Stephen Marsh. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, what does a world-renowned conductor listen to when he's not on the podium? We talk with Yannick Nizé-Séguin, conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera, and listen to the playlist he's made for us of music he loves that's inspired him. It includes pop, hip-hop, and classical music. I hope you'll join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. I'm Terry Gross.